This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's February 1st, 2022, and uh, we're talking about the Craft Malt Conference, which is coming up virtually um, in a couple weeks in February. Um, thanks so much for joining us and support Heritage Radio Network.org. Become a member. Well, uh, let's go around the room and introduce the guests. These are two of the keynote speakers of the, the speakers of the Craft Malt Conference. Let's start with June. Uh, hi, Jimmy. Good to, good to hear your voice. Uh, this is June Russell. I am a director of regional food programs with the Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming. Uh, previous to that, I spent 17 years with Grow NYC, working for Green Market, which is a market operator here in New York City. And while I was there, I uh, spearheaded the what became the the Gromisi Grains Project, and that was about 14 years of uh, working on some initial policy and um, development there, and a lot of value chain work. And uh, then we ran a pilot program at the markets that lasted for about six years, where we were aggregating uh, various grain products from producers across the Northeast and getting them out to markets. Uh, in New York City, and it was great projects. Um, and you're also the you're the keynote speaker for the Craft Malt Conference. So we're, we're going to now let's introduce Joel. Hey everyone, um, how's it going? My name is Joel Alex. I founded uh, or started my craft uh, malt journey back in 2012 13 when um, I conceived sort of this idea to uh, try to get some of the grain grown in Maine um, <laughs> into, into Maine brewed beers. Um, found out that wasn't a wholly unique idea and there were a couple other people at that time doing it, um, including uh, Valley Malt and, and a few other people uh, in the region it got really inspired and basically spring of 2013, Work to try to get that that processing um, here in Maine, and oh, geez, was it eight years later? No, yeah, eight nine years later, here we are. Um, we uh, we 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 kind of commercially scaled in 2015. Um, at the time, we were the largest traditional floor malting operation um, in North America. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Admiral Malting, Gray Maltes out in California has like maybe a little bit larger than us now, but we, um, we're still doing floor malting. Um, we've, you know, I think at last count we've, we've moved, uh, just around 5 million, um, pounds of, of, uh, main grown grains, um, cumulatively into the regional markets and we're really you know, the, our purpose is to try to, to, to grow markets for our regional agricultural products. Um, and I know we're going to probably talk about this soon, but, you know, the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance, I know June's involved with that. Like, we've got some grain connections through them. So, you know, that will all come up, I'm sure. And um, 
yeah, we're just excited to to be doing this and to be supporting the amazing craft beer industry you know, here we here in our uh, community. Wow. Thanks, Joel. And then I just want to give a shout out to Jesse Bussard, who's the director of the Craft Malter, Malsters Guild, which is also running the Craft Malt Conference. Unfortunately, there's a, some kind of weather issue. She's not able to get internet, but I want to give her a big shout out because the last year um, she has coordinated quite a few Craft Malt themed uh, episodes with us. And um, we will be back with her uh, around the Craft Malt Conference, which is again, like starting February 18th, it's online, but you got to check it out. Joel, what's the, um, the website for the Craft Maltsters, Craft Malt Conference, excuse me. Um, that if is, I don't get it, nobody's going to get it. That is a great question. It's well, it's craftmalting.com is the guild's website, so you can definitely go there. And then within that, is there a uh, check thing? But I think if you go to craftmalting.com, you'll be at the the guild. The guild is uh, who puts on the craft uh, malt conference, and um, you can get all the information there. So, all right, so let's get into the show. So, start with June because June. I want to know how you, as a, an inspector for the, the green markets, ended up becoming this wizard of grains in the Northeast. Because tell us how it got started. So there were bakers. I know this. There were bakers in the, the green markets in New York City. Some were from farms. Some weren't. And then they weren't. They didn't get any flour, right, from farms or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So there were there were conversations that that predated me. Um, I moved into that position in two thousand seven, and and it was kind of a simmering issue. And you know, Michael Horowitz was like, "Take this, do something about bakers," um, and you know, discovered that there there was some initial uh, initial groundwork there where. Um, you know, Don Lewis had been working with grain from Alton Ehrenhardt um, and incorporating fresh flour into his baked goods. And so we had, um, you know, I started with those two. Uh, Alton was an organic grower. So he really saw the value of having small grains in rotation. And, and he was also a little contrarian of, you know, pushing back on this notion that you couldn't uh, grow wheat in in New York, and he was just you know doing a, a small a small amount for his family, and and then teamed up with Don, and and Don started using that in his baked goods, and so you know we knew like okay, there's it's not impossible somebody's doing this here, um, but they had this initial policy that required bakers to source all of their flour uh, locally, and this was 2004. So I, I come from the food business background, Jimmy. That's how you and I met there on First Street. And, you know, I had spent, <laughs> I had spent 15 years uh, in production and all kinds of roles. Uh, I spent time at Zingerman's Bakehouse when they opened up. And that was like a, a second wave of artisan bread happening in the, in the United States. Um, so I had enough basic knowledge about baking and what what bakers would need you know was not an expert by any means more of a jack of all trades master of none but that you know the ability to communicate is where I came in as a facilitator I understood gluten and structure and 
things like that. So, you know, could uh, a person who who my, uh, was a predecessor in my position did a survey. I was, you know, the one document that I had to start with, and she had surveyed the green market bakers around what they were using, and so that was kind of a first look at like, okay, well, this is what people are using. What's out there? And it kind of lined up with my position because as I was doing inspections, I was out in the whole region, the Northeast region, the, the green market has a, a defined region for eligibility that covers most of the Northeast, um, stems from midway through Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, up to the Finger Lakes, parts of Vermont, um, Massachusetts. And when I started, you know, looking to find out like, okay, is there anybody doing this anywhere? And one thing I knew for sure that 100% was not feasible. <laughs> that was not going to happen. So <laughs> it was a, it was a well-intentioned policy, but it was not an achievable policy. So that was, I, started with that question of like, okay, if we reset this, what can we, what should we reset it to? So June, so back then, even the farmers, they were making baked goods, but they were just buying like wholesale or supermarket flour. Oh yeah. I mean, the exception of funny, funny story with Sharon Burns, leader of Red Alone, you know, they, they were always dedicated to organic flour. And so she, some of the pushback I got from them was like, we're already organic. Like we, expect, we want us to go local. What? Um, so you know, you could sort of see that as like that's was its own standard. And there were a few folks that were dedicated to to organic. Um, but other than that, you know, big range of of commodity. You know, very uh, just a couple of artisan bakers at that time. You know, Milanese was a. Uh, was used and 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 recognized as a, a good quality flower, and he was definitely he meaning Robert uh, Beauchemin, who was the miller at Milanese, um, had he was one of those guys who was a back to the lander from the 1970s, who started up a milling operation, and so you know 30 40 years later he's got a mature business, and we learned a lot from him. We learned a lot. Um, because he's an organic grower who really adapted his supply um, in that part. If you look at like the Northeast, like that part of Quebec is still part of our bioregion, uh, even though obviously it's not part of our um, national region. But yeah. um, So June, so just to help us. So even 15 years ago, 20 years ago, other than a cute little mill in Rhode Island that's making white cornmeal, uh, there wasn't, what was the connection? So you're saying there's farms, there's mills, there's malt. I mean, I still can't believe it even happened. Yeah. I I mean, it's all been, this has all been grassroots uh, organizing, convening, um, building momentum and movement and really relational um, power of community for sure you know I went to field days sometimes where there's only 10 people there but those 10 people were really passionate and we come back three years later and had launched a business um you know nofa nofa new york was an important ally uh you know doing those field days in that conference being a real 
point where folks could come together and meet in the winter and uh we did a lot yeah. of a lot of workshops June, I, there i just i just like want to interrupt here because i actually long time ago we actually met there one of my first forays into malting was i think the nofa conference in march of 2013 came out there listened to val uh Andrea speak about Valley Mark and I'm sure I heard you speak too and a guy making a sprout of bread and you're right there's not a lot of people but but the passion you mentioned it a couple of times and it's a passionate group of people early on um yeah. it's inspiring well, we, Joel why don't you let's just get to there and, and how you got started because um it was like whatever June was doing was like was a wizard's role <laughs> you know resurrecting something that used to be so commonplace and but how did you get started in, in craft malt, man? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think like passion, I, I was an educator and a um, like community organizer um, prior to Blue Ox Malt House. And I was actually thinking of going back to grad school to do some kind of like social entrepreneurship, um, specifically around food system. My kind of academic background was sustainable development, um, but I was kind of like utterless, uh, drifting um, around and trying, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But then I got really connected with food systems and food and where our food comes from. Um, and the idea of just like food being such a great entry point for thinking about sustainability because we all consume it. Um, it. We all have a relationship to food and maybe it's a healthy relationship, maybe it's not. But if we like knew more about it, I think we would also naturally start to um, think about other systems. Um, it's just such a great entry point. So anyway, I, I, I kind of got excited. And then I was talking to a craft mall, uh, brewer. Um, I had a potluck on a farm in um, Cornville, Maine. And we were just like, you know, he was lamenting he couldn't use local ingredients. And we were talking about it. I had done some home brewing, um, but I had never really connected the dots. And then it was like, yeah, well, we just can't actually get malt. Some people are doing some hops, but nobody can do the malting process. And I was like, well, that's, that's like silly. <laughs> and I had friends who were growing gray and I was like, like we gotta we gotta solve that and then i just started doing the research and finding else who was doing it and like i said valley mall was doing it there's riverbend down in north carolina there's a couple other small places um that were at most two to three years old and i just got really excited about it started seeking out opportunities like um the the nofa conference um in 2013 where you know, um, at least cross paths with June and um, met Tor Orschner and some other people that um, maintain relationships with and have since been able to buy grain from. Um, and, and yeah, just like became so impassioned by this that it, it quickly became what I wanted to do. And, um, and I, I, I kind of quit my job. <laughs> I actually, um, when I started, I only had, I had been an AmeriCorps member and I had only like $2,500 in my bank account because AmeriCorps members are paid a, a, a stipend of nothing. And, um, and I, and I, 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 I say I live based out of my car because I certainly had friends and family around uh, the region that I was couch surfing on. But for the next 18 months, I moved all over the state of Maine and really um, and really tried to like, get the momentum 
and the chops, um, both in malting technical expertise and business planning and, um, grain growing and really just try to like put the vision together. So, um, you know, fast forward and here we are, (laughs) um, I, you know, we're, we're, I, it's every year we work with well over a hundred and increasingly we're working with more and more regularly, I would say, you know, probably at least three dozen really regular customers, um, you know, who are ordering monthly. And if you extend to like people that we work with specific brands on, I mean, we, we work with, um, an enormous amount of the, the breweries, both in Maine, but in New Hampshire and Massachusetts and around the Northeast. And it's, it's just really exciting. Um, it's been, it's been a really. So, can you mention a couple of the breweries that you're working with now? Because yeah. one thing about craft malt is a little confusing because I know that, like the Brewers Association has an independent craft beer seal, but how do I know if, if someone's making, like, I know some breweries make batches with craft malt, but not the other batches. And, and I really like the flavor of craft malt. Yeah, it's, um, I'll answer that. You know, it's like sort of funny because uh, when I started, there were, I think, 33 operating brewing licenses in the state of Maine. And I was like, oh, there's so many. By the end of the first year, so going to 2014, there were uh, 42, I think. Um, And I kept track of all of the breweries in Maine and that we'd worked with up to 84 and then I lost track. <laughs> uh, like, so, so like, even I, you know, I can certainly like, uh, highlight some, some, some different breweries that we work with. Um, but, but I won't be able to highlight all of them, which is a shame. Um, we, yeah. So like so, someone that your, um, viewers or sorry, your listeners, um, are probably familiar with you know Allagash. They they've definitely been a leader in working with small uh, small grains and craft malt in the region. Um, I think this past year they they reached a goal they set for themselves. Uh, you know I think three years ago to use over a million pounds of main grown and processed grain. Um, they're they're continuing that commitment and you know that's been we've been a a, a part of that um which has been awesome but we're also seeing um you know we've been working with with newer breweries um you know we'll we'll get there but you know there's some small breweries like bellflower in um in portland maine that we've been working with we'll come back to them later um and then there's just a lot of small like small um tasting room focused breweries like Brunswick, Maine, there's moderation. We've been working increasingly out, outside of the state, connecting with um, breweries like Lamplighter and Cambridge, um, Craft Roots, which has always had a really strong um, commitment from day one. And they're in uh, Milford, Mass. Um, oh, geez, I hope I'm getting the names right. No, that's, that's a good story. No, no, that's yeah, good. it's like, there's, it, it's, it's a, uh, Oh, I could just keep going. I mean, the whole hour we're, could be kind of worse off everyone that we work with. So we're, we're there, coming but, back, and you're doing your yeah. job. Now let's go back to June. So June, I cut you off, but let's keep rolling with you because you're the timeline that uh, made all this possible. I think. Well, it's been a lot of a lot of people um, 
yeah, a lot of work across you know the country at this point for sure. Um, and Joel, I do remember you. I remember crossing paths with you and my, maybe my even had an email or two. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a fascinating journey. I'll tell you that because, uh, when I first was kind of given this assignment, I, I'm going to just tell the story because, you know, I, I actually felt kind of disappointed. I was like, what are you talking like baked goods at the farmer's market? We're talking about cider donuts and muffins and who cares, whatever. So many interesting like varieties, vegetable varieties coming along. But, you know, a few years into it and connecting with the researchers, and this is largely the organic community who's really like making clear like the the case about the soil and crop rotation and small grains having their place. And, and really the assignment was to add value to those, those grains, right? And so, you know, we can do that through, in the food world, like through niche markets and uh, really emphasizing those unique attributes. You know, a lot of that flavor, it took a while, it took a while for people to recognize flavor. There's a lot of skepticism that that could really exist in something like wheat um, or barley, you know, as you guys are experiencing, um, you know, so many things, and it's really been operating in this non-commodity market um, that's been so fascinating. And a, and a big, big, big piece of it is people who are values-based. You know, we see that at the market constantly, where you know that's where people who prioritize their food for whatever reason, whatever reason it is, it's like their food is important to them, how it's sourced, where it's come from, how it's treated um, is a really big driver. And that's been, you know, I think one of the key relational pieces that this, um, you know, community building work has, has been about. And then of course you combine like food and beverages and then all of a sudden everybody's having a great time. Like it's been, um, you know, really connecting the agricultural world and the food world. It's been super, super yeah. satisfying. And to, you, to you know, what, what were the what were the big hurdles? I mean, you had to get people to plant, but how, what's the what's the whole chain? The grains chain. I mean, I mean, it really it does start us. with research. And so, you know, one quick story there was that you know Mark Sorrells, who's the the head of the breeding and genetics department at Cornell has spent his entire career there. And it was only a few years ago at one of our events that he had something with his own wheat in it. You know, it spent his entire career disconnected from what he was actually producing. And I've always been really blown away by that. It's how, how can you spend your entire career disconnected? Like you've been cultivating different wheats and looking at, at different uh, characteristics and you've never tasted a cookie you know with your pro or a beer like and to see like it's been so animating for him to like have that experience so i think part of it is that you know how we've been so siloed by the larger food system how you know in this one in particular when you get to grains like we're talking commodity it's an entirely different universe than what we've been operating in you know the northeast has a lot of small farms we didn't have 
any of the background. We lost generations of knowledge and experience that did not get handed down. You know, there's you guys in Maine maybe had more than most because uh, your potato growers have been growing oats. Um, and maybe, you know, Maine has was a little quicker to be able to to pivot into production and sort of in so, in some ways. I mean, there's definitely challenges, though, um, you know, where we're, like it's a potato culture. And, you know, it's certainly there are this is not a blanket statement at all. But, you know, if if I think about like the general attitude and there are definitely some people we worked with who had this attitude, um, which was like, yeah, I just try not to lose money. I just put the grain in and I let it grow and I try not to lose too much money on it so I can get back to potatoes the next year. And, you know, uh, June, you know, and, and Jimmy, you, you know, at this point, you know, like y- you have to manage your grains and like we, you know, there's, there's a high to, to be able to source this market and, you know, every year there, the farmers do a lot of work, um, you know, to, to get the quality, you know, that, that, that we as malsters need, or that, ba- that bakers need, or, and that people ultimately consume. So, um, you know, there's, there's only like a lot of management and effort that goes that farmers who really are making commitment to this work are doing and uh and and you have to change a culture um and that can be a really hard thing to do especially with farmers who um you know the i heard the thing you start you said when you when you first start talking to them you're both like you know facing the same direction and slowly as your relationship builds over time you start actually looking at each other and facing each other and you're talking i mean it just just takes time um, to develop those relationships, but that's really any relationship. So it's not, I shouldn't say that, but also junior, it just, you're absolutely right about the researchers. That was my experience as well. Um, it just really invigorated all these people um, in, in the malting industry who were just like crunching numbers before or doing barley breeding. Um, and, and they were just so excited to have people care and interested about what they're doing and that it gets back to that passion piece, which you already mentioned. But yeah, just to be part of a passionate community is really invigorating, especially for some of these researchers who have made it their life and no one's ever really cared <laughs> about yeah. what they do. <laughs> so, Joel, um, you guys at Blue Ox Malt House in Portland, Maine, got to know you a little bit because originally the conference was going to be in person in Portland. And I was really looking forward to going up, but because of Omicron and all that, it's it's back to virtual. and. One thing that was great about the virtual conference last year is that I got to participate because it was it was based out of Montana, but I was in so many great breakout sessions. I, I talked to Aaron McLeod, who who I know June knows well, and um, some other friends from all over the country. And as a result of sitting in on the Craft Malt Conference, thanks to Jesse Boussard, I got to, to talk to maltsters and brewers and distillers from around the country this year. So um how did you your, your specialty is what floor malting T- tell us about yeah. that and what it is and how that's different i remember years ago aaron mcleod said who was at hartwick he had he had learned the industry in like western canada and he said basically what i learned was that there's not just a a truck full or or you know a a, a container vessel or whatever of malts coming out of canada he said it was like entire trains were loaded with malt. 
and or the grains for the malt. So what is floor malting and, and how does that define what you're doing? Because sometimes I want to know what is craft malting. Is does every craft malster have to floor malt? Uh, no, 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 definitely not. Um, you know, I think uh, we're all small businesses and you know, each of us have a unique business model and choose, you know, the methods of um, that we that we malt with kind of based off of where we are at um, the, you know, the specific thing about floor malting and just like if you humor me for a second, probably a lot of your listeners already know this, but I mean, the, the malting process is 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 really simple. It's in, in, uh, in theory, it's just soaking grain in water, um, letting it germinate and then basically baking it or kilning it um, down to a dry product. Then there's some like cleanup afterwards to, to get it all bagged up um, and ready for brewers. Um, but those steeping, germination and killing processes can use all sorts of different equipment and methods, just like there's a lot of different types of brew systems out there. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot, um, a lot of what you see in the industrial malt, <laughs> malting operations and, and even some craft malsters for, for different reasons, you know, you utilize this is you'll see these pneumatic systems where um, you might do the steeping in one vessel and then the germination and kilning in another, and maybe it's a drum or maybe it's a, you know, a, a, a flat uh, bottom, um, you know, vessel that looks like a mash tun um, for people kind of trying to visualize this. Um, or, you know, or you do it um, where you steep and germinate in one vessel and you dry and kiln in another vessel. Um, with, or you do it in, in three different uh, vessels. And with floor malting, what makes it uh, different is like we, we do the steeping and steep tank. Um, then do the germination on a malting floor, uh, which is the method used in a lot of traditional European malt houses. And really notably, and a lot of people, you know, connect it with uh, distilleries in Britain and, and Scotland. Um, so we're we're doing that uh, germination piece where we're taking the grain that's been soaked in water. We're putting it out. We're couching it, as it's called, um, on a floor. Um, so building a mound of it. Um, spreading it out and then over the course of uh, many days four to five days we are gently raking and interacting with that malt um, to turn it over to help it release heat that it's uh, generating during the germination process and um, before we then load it up into our kiln and at, at our malt house we have a single deck um, kiln, um, really great to produce a variety of, of base malts, um, from like Pilsners to um, Munich. Um, and we, yeah, it's just a really gentle, it's, it's really hands-on. It's very physical. We have a team of about, uh, five, six, it's good. It feels like it's constantly moving. It just hired someone else, um, who come in and help with the physical nature of that. But that's definitely part of our mission too, is to provide good jobs for our community. So even though it involves a lot of manual labor, which is, you know, something not everyone has, um, 
or, you know, is able to do, uh, you know, we have the space, we have the ability to do it. And um, we're able to like kind of work with, with the staff of about five um, people overall, we've, we've now got about nine people in the mall's house. So we're slowly growing. It's a, it's a fun team to be a part of, but anyway, I'm starting to go down all these different holes, but the floor <laughs> melting, yeah, the floor melting is, um, is is just that germination out on on the floors um and, and you know i like to say that we're um a mixture of like traditional uh techniques with with like modern technology because in the old floor meltings they would open windows to kind of control temperature and it would be too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer so you can only have like a period in the fall and the spring where you could actually do the malting you know we've mechanized that so we have a cooler room we keep it at a nice even temperature so that like helps us get the consistency and the and help us control and tweak for the quality that the brewers want and their performance of their products um and it helps us you know develop unique flavors i mean just just like you can take a beer you know of the same recipe and brew it on a lot of different beer systems and it will always taste different brewer to brewer the same things for for malt i mean us craft malsters we're all sourcing, you know, regionally and locally. So you already have that layer of uniqueness. Then you look at, you know, the variety of methods we all employ. Um, even if we were to use the same grain, just because our methods are slightly different, you you would get different results from from so every craft malter. When yeah. you guys are floor malting, do you actually use your nose? I mean, do you smell when it's done? Oh, fun? absolutely! Like you can, you can smell it. I mean, um, you you walk into that room, and if if you're not, um, you know, it's a quality control piece. I mean, there's a whole range of smells that happen. So you get the kind of like dry hay, just like the raw grain, just has this like the raw barley. We we mostly work with barley. We do work with wheat and triticale and oats and rye, um, but the um but we're mostly doing barley and you get this like nice like hay summer field kind of smell and then you soak it in water and then it actually almost smells like cucumbery and um and like sweet like cucumber right when it's coming out of the steep tanks and then the initial kind of day or two of it being on the floor um and then over time it kind of develops like a bread doughy kind of smell uh if if I could like say that, um, as it gets ready to go into the kiln. And of course, then you go in the kiln and you dry it down and then you get those like traditional quote unquote multi, um, you know, dry malt sweetness and crackers and um, graham crackers or depends on the type of malt. And it's just, um, it's, it's delicious. If you, if you are smelling something, there are lots of different smells in the malt house. Um, and they're all they all should be good smells if you're smelling anything that's like sour or unpleasant you know there's an issue and you go and you find out what it is and you do what you can to either remove it or correct it <laughs> oh that's great hold on so back to june so june um in your long career um what's like one moment that really stands out like you're trying to get farmers to, to grow small grains you know was there a moment when people had mills or malts or was there some other moment? Was there one person that really took the lead that you said, wow, this is really happening? 
Did you ever realize it was happening while it was happening? I mean, uh, I mean, every year there are milestones, right? Like there were, so it, it always seemed like there was, you know, there's been steady growth for sure, right? And, you know, I think a milestone of, you know, having She-Wolf come to market was a real milestone where, you know, they just, they proved that you could make really good quality bread. <laughs> and, you know, you look now, like you call it the modern bread line, but it's like, people just at market there's long lines here for green market for their bread um you know so i think now it's just like there every year there's a little more there's a little more there's a little more and you know i think we're hitting this tipping point you know i think one really motivating thing was early early on when we had had you know i think our first convening and gathered folks and you know, they always say, you know, that farmers are so conservative and it's like, well, sometimes they really jump in, you know, they just jump all in. And, and there was a grower who, who did that and he called me up at the end of that year and literally chewed me out. He's like, you're misleading the farmers. I grew wheat and I couldn't sell it to the mill. And, and they said, well, how long have you been growing? And of course, they didn't want to talk to me after that. So, you know, he didn't really have any he didn't know the specifications. He didn't understand yet, you know, learned over time. It, it, it generally takes a grower five years to really become good. And, and which makes sense. Like they say in the food world, you're not, it takes 10 years to become a chef. Um, that kind of understanding with the crop that you're working with. But, you know, that, that was a really big motivator. Like it, it, it definitely stung to get chewed out by a farmer um, and very, made me very motivated to try to make this work. Um, you know, that we we do create markets, um, but there's been just, you know, it's been so, the, the complexity has been unreal, like particularly with wheat, but you know, it's, it's only marginally less complex with barley <laughs> too, just, you know, what it, what it really takes. June, I, I then, think we each think the thing we worked in is most complex or probably <laughs> equally complex. It's just a matter of what you're paying the most attention to. <laughs> hey, hold on. I'm going to, uh, we're going to take a short break in a minute, but let me give a shout out to a beer I'm drinking. I'm drinking exhibit a brewing out of Framingham mass, the briefcase Porter. Uh, they have a long relationship with Valley malt in Central Mass, and it says, we worked closely with our friends at Valley Malt to develop the custom roasted malts in this beer, brown malt, chocolate wheat, and chocolate malt. And I will say that I love a malt, uh, craft malt type beer like that. So we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So, hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, the Craft Malt Conference is coming up in February, and we're doing a pre-show with two of the speakers, uh, June Russell and uh, Joel from Blue Ox Malt House. Uh, Joel, just tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking about at the Craft Malt Conference, because both you and June are key speakers. Yeah, thanks. So I'll, I'm, I'll be talking the second weekend. And I mentioned Avermalt um, earlier in the show. Um, and I'll be talking with Curtis um, Davenport over there. Uh, we actually went to malt school together in 2013. Uh, we'll, we, we'll be uh, talking about floor malting with um, Gabe Troth moderating and um, just doing presentation to like tell people about um, you know, why they might want to floor malt or why they might not want to floor malt. So it's kind of the ins and out. I mean, floor malting, uh, you know, it's got a lot of great benefits. It produces a really well-developed um, malt that performs really well for breweries, really flavorful. But, you know, it also involves a lot of floor space, a lot more manual labor. So, you know, we'll be going to the ins and outs of floor malting and um, ho- hopefully, uh, hopefully getting a couple converts and, um, helping people understand whether it's a good choice for them. All right. And June, you're the keynote speaker. I believe, are you talking about this theme, it takes a village to raise a glass? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I had not planned on that, but maybe I'll work that in somehow for sure. <laughs> for sure. You know, I think um, when Jesse contacted me and I was like, you know, are you sure this is like, Malting and beer worlds, but she said, you know, they really were looking for somebody who had some background in, and I guess the kind of work that I've done, like background about the Northeast and um, the evolution of of our this sector of our local agriculture. So, yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, talk about some of that journey. You know, I think. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, what's unique about the Northeast and how small grains uh, fit into our farming systems here. You know, it's so different. I spent a, a few years out at the Cascadia Grains Conference in Washington State and, and working with some partners out there and just really different, you know, landscapes and and assets there. So we each have our our challenges to what building these networks look like. But I think when I go back to this origin of the work for myself and what has made me so committed to it, it really comes back to the health of the farming system um, and you know the healthy soils, And but it, it really extends so far beyond that. It really extends then to health of rural communities and, and health of our farmer's market communities. 
um, and how those things kind of, you know, are, we all depend on each other, that kind of reciprocity that oh, yeah. that happens. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're, we're going to talk to both of you again, because you guys are so awesome. And I love this. It, it takes me back to Pete Brown, who's one of my favorite uh, English beer writers. A couple of years ago, his book was called Miracle Brew. And he actually talked about the key ingredients of beer. And he said that the average person, in, in his case in England, thought that beer was made from chemicals or was just made in a factory. And, you, and just talking <laughs> to you guys, I, it, it's, it's, it's really true. It does take a village to raise a glass because that whole farm to glass thing you don't just clap your hands and it happens. And and thanks for that little Absolutely insight not. into the work that went into this. And we're really looking forward to, to following what you guys are going to say and the whole craft malt conference. And thanks again, Jesse Boussard for helping coordinate this show and all the support you've given us. And we've learned a lot about craft malt this year and so much more to learn. So thanks again, guys. Thanks to Armin, our engineer is going to clean this up and a uh, big shout out. Thanks to June and Joel. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time. All right. Woo. Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.